the Rick and Joe NFL Draft Show, powered by NFLDraftScout.com. Yes, yes, yes. Back at it again. It's the end of the mayhem for the 2019 NFL Draft. RIC in a place to be Rick Saratella telling it like it is when it comes to the NFL Draft here at the NFL Draft Bible since 2002. It's what we do. We're putting a ribbon on the 2019 NFL Draft Destination Nashville. If you've been tuned in all week long, we appreciate it so much. Each and every day we've been recapping and previewing. Today we're going to rehash it all with the NFL Draft Bible Familia. Uh, We'll have the original uh, NFL Draft Bible Familia in the building today. John Murphy will be joining us, of course, Joe Everett, and uh, we'll have a special guest, Emery Hunt, later on in the show to break it all down for you. We've recapped day one, day two. Now we're going to kind of overcap the entire draft. We're going to go through our favorite picks from day three. Uh, We'll try to talk about some of the undrafted free agent possibilities that we like as well. Um, So listen, if you haven't gotten the NFL Draft Bible publication, you can still do it. It's still worth it. You can get all the analysts, NFLDraftScout.com, right up in the menu bar. You can download the 2019 draft guide. And, of course, hey, uh, fantasy football is right around the corner. You want to know where these skill positions stack up. You want to know, uh, you know, how different players fit in different schemes for your fantasy football league. There's still a lot of value to that, too. So with that being said, uh, we're going to welcome in the co-hosts for today. We will start off. Uh, with Mr. John Murphy, because it's been way too long since he's been on a podcast with us, uh, probably last year about this time. And, you know, he is uh, NFL Draft Bible original, uh, went on to the CFL, of course, uh, winning a great cup with the Calgary Stampeders and then serving with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders for the past several years as assistant GM. We welcome him into the show right now. John, pleasure to have you, my man. How are we doing today? Hey Rick, uh, pretty enjoyable. Uh, uh, I guess if uh, if you're the Vikings, I think they may have just made another trade to get a late round pick. Uh, but uh, I think overall a pretty exciting weekend and uh, a lot of ways I think you could go with who you like and and who you think may not have had good weekends. And I think that's always exciting, especially if you're a fan of the draft because it's gonna continuation of the conversation of what just went on the last few days will take you all the way through training camp and then the exciting part starts because we actually get to see how these guys pan out and no doubt about it everybody's a winner right now so uh everybody's feeling good about their draft we'll be on site with uh, some of the rookie camps around the league and yeah you know rick spielman wheeling and dealing the seahawks i mean uh, they entered the draft with four picks i think they winded up with a dozen uh just unbelievable uh how some teams can can just master the draft it seems like the usual suspects year in and year out here to talk about it with me one more time again today of course he is the director of college football scouting here at the nfl draft bible he's been with us for over a decade strong he is never leaving a stone unturned joe everett joins the show joe uh back at it again how are we doing today brother i'm doing great uh working at that 2020 mock draft as we speak <laughs> no doubt we'll have that for you guys as well Turning the page, we can't stop, we won't stop. Let's get into it. Uh, You know, John, I'll start off with you because, you know, uh, Joe and I had a chance to kind of grade the the drafts through the first two days. Now we have the entire 
body of work to uh, grade these teams. Uh, so hit us with some of the drafts that you did like. You mentioned uh, Rick Spielman doing a lot of trading there. Uh, was he in the mix for your favorite drafts? Who did you think came out a winner here uh, after the weekend? Yeah, I think, you know, he, he, to me, they would go in a different category in terms of what you would have to like about it was the fact that they maximized the number of guys that they could, you know, bring to camp, you know, get on their roster and, you know, and have to compete to the middle and back end of their roster. But I think it's ultimately difficult to say that you would think their draft is going to grade out extremely high if you have five of those, you know, five to seven of those picks being done, you know, basically in the last 40 to 50 names. You know, so, you know, if the targets that they made in those areas, if their vibe for the draft turns out to be correct, that there were guys that fit for their needs later in the draft uh, and they were able to even poach a couple of guys that they thought they might not be able to, you know, entice in, you know, priority free agents. So a lot of those trades, though, turned out to be guys that were really back into the draft. It wasn't moves that were made, you know, when you're sitting there and you realize the Patriots have won the Super Bowl and you're sitting there in the first couple of days, and about every other, you know, time you turn around from the TV, they're making another selection, and they're picking seven guys in, you know, in the first 40-plus players, you know, that's something that you have to, A, get excited about, you know, if you're a Patriot fan, but B, you have to be sitting there with the rest of the league going, how did we allow this, you know, to continue happening, you know, year after year? So I think the Patriots are right there, you know, uh, as close as anybody to to getting a solid grade, you know, for me in the in the plus area. Uh, I think you like what the Colts did, not seeing the guy maybe they exactly wanted, maybe having a few things not fall their way, uh, you know, in round one, and he makes a couple of moves back. And you could then argue he probably got, I would guesstimate, you know, two to three of his top 32 to top 40 players by time the second round is over with, by manipulating the draft to get a receiver, to get a pass rusher, to keep filling in the holes defensively, getting better depth. And more importantly for a young team, there's now a lot of high-level compete guys there. You know, their, their, their roster from 20 to 45, 50 now is a lot of interchangeable parts to say that those kids that came on strong, those guys that jumped in last year and were making plays now cannot just sit there and say – oh, that's my job, you know, basically, you know, I've got that under control. They're now really giving themselves a a really good chance there uh, to go after the Texans this year with a deeper roster than they had last year. And then the other one is, I I think, two other teams that are, one hoping that last year made them on the cusp and another team hoping for a huge rebound. The Chargers for what their needs were, the Falcons for what their needs were, I think both come out of this really hoping that they found two or three guys, the Falcons, offensive linemen, and I think, you know, for the Chargers to get another guy up front, you know, Tillery potentially with Ingram and Bosa is an amazing possibility there for what they could do in that division. And I think they keyed on the areas of knowing what the Chiefs were able to do offensively last year. Denver's offense is hopefully improving from there standpoint and knowing that the Raiders had all these extra picks in the next two years I think the Chargers really attacked their needs but also the needs of what they need to get better in order to win that division and keep the Chiefs you know moving back down a little bit this year 
is what the Chargers went after in the draft, and I think they did a good job at it as well. Yeah, you know, you have to like what uh, GM Tom Telesco has done there in San Diego. I think he is a uh, GM on the uprise. And uh, you mentioned the Indianapolis Colts. I mean, listen, we've talked about these guys, um, obviously, doing the day two recap because they just kind of owned the second round there with three picks, adding Rakusen, Ben Bonago, and Paris Campbell. And you take a look at what – this roster looks like, like John said, it's night and day compared to from what Ryan Grixon did to Chris Ballard in just a matter of, I think, two years now. Um, they've turned this roster upside down, much like the Raiders are doing, uh, whether you agree with their selections or not. Um, that's going to be a completely different roster by the time they hit training camp. So um, I think, you know, Thomas Dimitrov is a, an experienced guy, as is. Uh, Bill Belichick, obviously, um, you know, you mentioned uh, a lot of good uh, GMs that are, you know, a couple there that have been doing this a while, a couple GMs on the rise. Uh, Let's turn it over to Joe Everett, of course, Rick Saratella, John Murphy, Joe Everett here breaking down the 20, (laughs) recapping the 2019 NFL draft in the books. Hard to imagine. Uh, You know, Joe, we see eye to eye so far during our previous podcast you heard john there run through some of the drafts he liked uh any comments on what he said and then who did you like oh well definitely uh took one uh right out from under me with the colts but uh i think a lot of people are fans of the colts and justly so uh the manipulation of the board and and i uh the the theme that john hit on is uh, i agree now it's like a lot closer to a legit too deep to where there's going to be some active competitions and training camp and geez, it's hard not to like what Chris Ballard's doing. Uh, just big fan of what's going on there. But I think also uh, not only is Ballard a winner, uh, John Elway is recouping his image a little bit. I never thought I'd be a fan of another Bronco draft again, but last year was strong. I thought a uh, really good offensive haul and just all around some solid picks, but this year, it's it's adding a new look offense. Um, I love Fant. Uh, say what you want about Locke. I'm, I'm not his biggest supporter either, but there's options now. And uh, the Risner, uh, I think that's just a guy. We talk about the Swiss Army knife offensive lineman. I, I think he could fit into a lot of positions. So um, uh, the Broncos got help where they needed it. There's teams that are going to look different I would expect them definitely on the offensive side of the ball you know they can play defense and rush the passer get after the quarterback but they may actually be competent uh, on offense I never thought I'd say that so uh, that's that's the first one uh, Elway's a winner and I I, I don't love the the Dolphins draft but when you include that trade and add uh, one of the top rated quarterbacks on my board from last year you still have to factor in that they get Rosen at budget and knock $15 million right off of his contract. I mean, this is, who cares if they draft two in next year? I like the rental. I'm shocked that more teams didn't go after this. I know there's some maybe issues with dealing with Rosen, but the kid is a talent. It's so difficult to get quarterbacks. Why not take a chance on somebody that could fit? I mean, that's just the bottom line. You never know with quarterbacks. So get a a, a once-in-a-lifetime guy that can spin the ball like that potentially. Who knows if he jives with your your staff? Uh, And at this price, 
no excuses. So, uh, but you know, the, the rest of their draft is uh, not exactly lighting my not my world on fire. And then this is another one I hate to say it because I hate this team. I think the building's defective. I think their medical staff's defective. If I've got a player in there, I mean, I don't want their doctors touching them because Washington right now, uh, Darius Geis. Multiple surgeries. Colt McCoy, multiple surgeries. Alex Smith, multiple surgeries. This is no coincidence, so I don't like the building. But Bruce Allen, your scouting department, like this draft, if you tell me the team got this haul uh, top to bottom, they got Jimmy Moreland third day, Kelvin Harmon third day. I don't know what's going on there with Harmon. I had him as a top 100 player, but Bryce loved to compete with uh, Darius Geis, and you still have Adrian Peterson kicking everybody's tail in. And then our boy, Terry McLaurin, official draft Bible man crush. Uh, and the just, you know, I don't have to bore you with the top picks either. I, I think top, I, the Redskins, you know, kudos to them. I think they got a lot of help. They need a lot of help. But uh, that just, once again, you take the team away from them, you just say, hey, man, Team A got this haul. Wow. So that's a good job, Redskins. Yeah, I'm on board with the Redskins. I had Haskins rated as the top quarterback in this year's draft. So if he does pan out, I think this is a team that really elevated their level of con- – I mean, Montez Sweat at 26, McLaurin we talked about. Love, you got to like – I mean, I would have liked to seen Rodney Anderson there personally, but, hey, uh, Love mm-hmm. is an interesting guy. Uh, Cole Holcomb we like in the fifth round. And, yeah, Jordan Brailford in the seventh. So, I mean – I, I like what they did from top to bottom. I'm on board with that. Uh, I agree with your 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 Josh Rosen ass- assessment. I mean, I think, you know, the thing is there, I think they get them for like three years, and they're only on the hook for $6 million. Uh, John, I'm, I'm kind of interested to hear your opinion on the Josh Rosen deal because even if that doesn't pan out, hey, you can come back. Chances are Dolphins will be picking at the top of the draft next year anyway. So even if you don't like Rosen, you can go after one of these quarterbacks if you didn't like what you saw this season. Yeah, and I think, you know, a couple of things, you know, that you saw and you've heard it multiple times, you know, throughout the draft and, you know, even the rumors around whether it's a team like the Jets uh, the Redskins, you know, when they're saying, you know, what, what maybe the personnel and the coaches and the ownership, those are the things that scare you, I think, more than anything when you hear constant instability, you know, and, and you mentioned the thing about the Redskins, right? And we had, you know, within the past 10 or 12 years, you know, when the Cleveland Browns and even the Buccaneers to a lesser degree had some issues behind the scenes with their training staff and, you know, staff, you know, and things like that. But to hear that, you know, like the owner only sits in on one meeting, like, hey, we all remember the old days of Al Davis and, you know, the whole draft selection and everything they you thought was going one way with the Raiders, and all of a sudden it's Vernon Davis, it's Derek Gibson, it's Darius Hayward Bay, it's Jamarcus Russell, you know, but it was not done with everybody being on the same page. I think those type things worry you when you're saying, well, now they came back and trade for Sweat, and, and that makes the football department happy. I don't really see how, you know, you can be on different pages and then come up with, you know, different solutions to meet different people's criteria. I think you kind of have to stay on your, your one way of doing things. This is how we're drafting. This is how we're building, you know, and this is how we're going to be successful as opposed to feeding all these different entities. If you're 
doing something for your head coach and you're doing something for your owner and you're doing something that, you know, for, for them, the scouting department, I think, you know, you're looking for too many mouths. And I think on the flip side, this is a, an area where with the Dolphins, this actually works in accordance with all three sides being happy because, yes, the ownership sees that the Dolphins have not been, you know, on the field and off the field, have not been what they want them to be or expect them to be out of a team that has the historical value uh, that the Dolphins do and also have the, the financial value that the Dolphins do. So talking about a franchise quarterback in the way that their ownership has talked about next year's draft, but you have, you know, Chris Greer, who's clearly now in control, but knows how quickly that can come and go because he saw how much, you know, the popularity of the last guy came and went, and Tannenbaum went from being, you know, kudos and everybody loving him when he's signing free agents to being run out the door, you know, two and a half years later. They're not wanting to sit around and take a three- or four-win season, uh, you know, right in front of them. So I think, you know, to be able to, you know, move around the draft, then kind of get Arizona, you know, and say, hey, take it or leave it at 48. And when Arizona doesn't take that to have the, you know, the you know the nerve on the Dolphins' side to say, well, great, I'm going to trade 48 for 62, offer you that. And if you don't take it, well, then, hey, we'll just move on. And maybe they would have drafted, you know, a guy at 62 to come in and compete. I think that's really where you got to give Chris Greer and his staff the kudos is the trade is the trade, and it's great to get a guy, no money, that you know, an easy contract to deal with, and a guy that, like you said, hey, next year, if he's good enough and you don't have to draft, that's awesome, and you're you know five years ahead of your plan. And if he's still struggling, or if you're not sure if he's your guy, or you just fall in love with somebody for next year's draft, you still have a very uh, you know easy guy to keep as a credible backup, or potentially make another move with him because you've now put him out there for almost two years, and I think you need to give yourself at least a chance to to be, if not a contender in your division, you're, you're not going to just lay down. You have Fitzpatrick who can get you to and from some games in an early stretch, and then you flip it over to Rosen in the midway part of the season. At least you're giving your fans some hope that there's some growth potential this year and not all in like we're putting all our eggs in the 2020 basket because, as we've seen, that doesn't always pan out. There's not always the LeBron James at the end of the rainbow. There's not always a, you know, there's not always that guy, you know, there for teams. You can't tank in the NFL and hope that what's going to happen with another guy that's playing a, in college football and, and could suffer injuries, could suffer inconsistencies, you know, and all those different things that can happen from this year to next. Putting all your eggs in that basket is probably not a good way to go. So really, I think the two things that you really like with the Dolphins is, number one, being able to manipulate and give the Cardinals the least they could give for Josh Rosen. And secondly, give themselves the best chance to be successful both in 19 and 20, because at least you know they have a good enough veteran quarterback to play this year, and now they have a credible guy who had a top 10 grade. Probably if you added the quarterbacks in this year and next year's draft and last year's, still falls in the top ten. I think it would be hard to say that Josh Rosen wouldn't have a top ten grade this in last year's group, and even if you add the three or four guys that might be in next year's draft, he's still probably uh, a top ten quarterback, and to get him for you know what they got him for I think is an excellent move for, for them just in terms of how they were able to manipulate the draft. No, that was definitely a great trade, a great maneuver by Chris Greer. They had Arizona 
by the Cahoons because, you know, listen, who wanted to go into the off-season activities with Josh Rosen and Kyler Murray in the building? So uh, great work there in acquiring him. We're, uh, again, here with John Murphy, Joe Everett, Rick Saratella. We got a chance to hear uh, some of their winners. We do have a guest today. He is Emery Hunt from the footballgameplan.com, star of the playbook. Uh, you've seen him on CBS Sports. You've seen him on ESPN. Uh, you've seen him on The Athletic. And he is now with us here on NFL Draft Bible Radio. We wanted to pick his brain uh, and get his quick thoughts for a second here. So, Emery, uh, welcome in onto the show. You're joined by John Murphy and Joe Everett. We appreciate you taking some time. I know everybody's busy this time of year. So, welcome on in. We're going to fire it in right into it, brother. Uh, who, who did you think came out with uh, some drafts that you like here over the past weekend? Well, first, I appreciate you guys having me on. I instantly think the Washington Redskins had, quite honestly, the best draft um, because of where they were able to get Dwayne Haskins and also where they got Montez Sweat, in addition to them adding later on in the draft receivers like Terry McLaurin and also Calvin Harmon. This was a team that's a really good team last year, one game away from the playoffs with a guy they pulled literally off the, off the street in Josh Johnson and was literally one game away from being in the playoffs. So this is a really good team that they got a franchise quarterback and an outstanding defender to replace Preston Smith. I also believe the uh, Cardinals did a, a really good job of adding receiver weapons around Kyler Murray. And I also believe, you know, if, if we're being completely honest, um, Baltimore did a good job, too, getting the – defensive help because they have to replenish the depth there, and also getting two game-breakers at receiver, something that they sorely needed since I want to say the team got to Baltimore. So uh, I like what those three teams did in the draft. All right, yeah, we're on board with the Redskins for sure. That seems to be a, a common team amongst all of us. And, you know, it's it's uh, a good draft for Eric DaCosta, you know, uh Grabbing, like you said, Marquise Brown and Miles Boykin, giving Lamar Jackson some weapons there. Jalen Ferguson, uh, kind of uh, in that Terrell Suggs kind of mold. Ironic that he breaks Suggs' record and then, you know, kind of slides in the draft just like Suggs. Um, so yeah, now I'm on board with the Ravens. On the opposite end of the spectrum, who were who was a team or two that you just kind of was were scratching your head after the weekend was over. Well, it's still early. You know, I, I tend to look at the undrafted free agents in addition to the draft class and, and before I hand out a grade. So i got to wait till the, the undrafted guys get finalized. But I thought because they only had a minimal amount of picks, um, I, I looked at the Chicago Bears and was like, okay, maybe they could have went some other places. But usually they do a good job of drafting guys, especially small school guys. But this year I just felt like, you know, some of the some of their selections, you know, David Montgomery, um, just didn't it didn't really wow me, so to speak. So I would say Chicago because normally they usually have a, an assortment of picks. They have very few this year and even with that, uh, wasn't able to get those landmark guys like they've usually done. Yeah, you know, it's it's like how much of an upgrade is David Montgomery over Jordan Howard? I don't know. Um, and then, you know, you take a running back, like you said, you only have got five picks to work with, and then you take another running back in round seven in a, in a Kareth White, 
and I'm assuming that's for special teams purposes, but, you know, I don't think White is taking playing time away from Tariq Coleman. If it's, it's strictly a special teams guy, you only got five picks to work with, and you take two running backs, you know, it, it, it does make you scratch your head just a little bit. And, you know, you mentioned the small school, Valdosta uh, State, Stephen Denmark. I know you were all over him, and you've got a good interview floating around uh, on the uh, internet there. Of course, you know, Emery's YouTube channel is uh, incredible, so make sure you check out Football Game Plan on YouTube. Uh, before we let you boogie, Emery, any other picks, any value picks that you saw that or, or really stood out from a specific individual selection standpoint? I thought the Saints did a good job uh, getting Alizé Mack, the tight end. That's another position where they have sorely needed uh, an upgrade since Jimmy Graham. And they got a guy in Mack who last year finally started to realize some of that potential and put together a solid season. And he had a really good um, showing at the combine. And so just, he was building, he was building um, momentum in the right direction. And I think when you look at him going to that Saints offense, they're going to utilize his skills really well. And they needed a, they needed a game break at receiver. They didn't get one, but they added a guy at tight end, uh, which could help open up their offense. They needed some other threat outside of Michael Thomas. I think a guy like Alizé Mack definitely answers that that question. That's Emery Hunt. Make sure you follow him on Twitter at Football Game Plan, footballgameplan.com. He's all over YouTube. He's all over ESPN during the season as a color analyst and doing great stuff on CBS Sports Online, of course, The Athletic. Hey, Emery, if you get too busy and you need to pass off another job, let me know, brother. I got you guys. All right, take care, man. Always a pleasure. And uh, that's Emery Hunt. Always crossing paths with that man on the scouting trails. Uh, You know, he's on location across the nation just like us. Of course, John Murphy, Joe Everett here. And, you know, he transitions into the Alizé Mack conversation. And I know you guys are both fans of Alizé Mack. I had a chance when I was living out at Vegas to uh, kind of uh, be around him a little bit. And I know you guys both like the upside. Uh, I just, you know, coming out of Vegas – the things I've seen and heard, I, I just feel like, you know, here's just a straight knucklehead. John, I know you texted me when this selection was made. Why do you like the Alizé, pick, uh, Alizé Mack pick so much? Well, I, li- I like where it, where it happens, right? If you're telling me this is, you know, they're, they're taking him over Sternberger, if they're taking him over, uh, you know, uh, then making a move to get a, a DB you know, and that, if that was why they were making the trade to go up and you know say, hey, this is a bona fide guy that's 100%, you know, turned around and in the right direction, then I would say, hey, that's that that's a real suspect idea. What I like is that he does fit. What they're going to ask him to do is what he does well. They're not going to concentrate on his weaknesses in terms of would they like him to get stronger? Would they like him to be more physical? You know, would you like all those things? Terrific. But if he was, he'd be a second or third round pick. Using him for what he does well, having him in there instead of asking Dan Arnold basically to eat 24 hours a day, seven days a week, so that he can be 230 pounds and try to play, you know, tight end is a much better idea. Better athlete than Josh Hill, you know, who's maximized his ability and made plays. And then I think the other part is having a guy like Jared Cook in the building who was at times throughout his career a little bit of a guy that always people were saying, 
Got to get him with his concentration. Got to get the inconsistencies. Got to get him to be a better player down to down, week to week, practice to practice. And then I also think, even though he's retired temporarily, we'll see, having Ben Watson in the city, who is one of the best people that was in the NFL in recent years, and how he lives his life and how he goes about things, I would think it would be crazy that the Saints would not, at some point, try to match those two guys together and book him, bookend him between Ben Watson off the field while he has the time, Jared Cook on the field while he's there as a teammate, and have Max not look at those two guys and say, number one, they've both done similar things to me in terms of being young, you know, not paid attention to detail, you know, have stories from Georgia and South Carolina and early in their careers, and then say, but look at the rebound that those two guys were able to make. Watson on the back end of his career, you know, has an amazing back seven years of his career compared to the beginning. And Cook, who is on the path to doing the same thing, going from a a guy that everybody had kind of written off at a certain point, and now between the Rams and the Raiders has, you know, turned himself into a guy that's probably on the upswing to the back end of his career. So I think where he goes in the draft, the team he goes to, and then what you're asking him to do, the chance to just flex that guy out and and hope he's available in open space, uh, having him have to, you know, have a limited role early in his career, 10, 15 plays, you know, maximum. Does he have to get better as a teamer? Does he have to get better with the concentration and stop kind of giving himself the speed bumps he's given? The suspension against LSU in the bowl game, uh, missing a year for academics. But I think some of those flaws can mature their way out of his system if he decides to jump in two feet with the kind of people that they have around him in that building. And and a lot of guys have gone in there, you know, and been around Breeze and been around, you know, that staff and have found their way to, you know, kind of being able to, you know, mature a little bit, find a way to to kind of work some of those, you know, things out. So to me, that's why it's a good fit and a good situation for Mac to in order to utilize his strengths early in his career, but have a chance to get over the hump with some of the things that have kept him from being a much higher selection because there are a lot of tight ends that went, you know, in day two and early in day three who were not ever thought of in the way that he was. And there were a few games at times, you know, where he flashed that. It's just, hey, if the light bulb can even go to, you know, from 30 to 60, you know, just get it halfway, you know, screwed in correctly, then it's a very, it turns out to be a good selection for the Saints and it turns out to be a very good opportunity for Mac. Indeed. And, Joe, you know, this is a guy we we touted throughout the season on various podcasts. I'll let you weigh in here. Alizé Mack to the Saints late in the draft, I think seventh rounder. Uh, obviously, I think you like it, but your thoughts? Oh, yeah, clear good value. Uh, not doubting that. It's just um, I'm a Notre Dame fan, and that he's my eighth tight end for a reason. I think it's like John said, that, that light bulb's got to get screwed in all the way. I think there's just like a disconnect upstairs. I've seen a ton of interviews with this guy, and that's my criticism of the Saints. I think they drafted a couple of knuckleheads that they're taking a chance on because they're great athletes. The upside is there. Uh, Chauncey Gardner-Johnson and Mac. Uh, they better hope it works out. But what I like the most is uh, 
what you're just talking about with Ben Watson. Like, why can't he do what Jason Witten's doing with the Cowboys in like a player coach role? Because like uh, those 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 players just take to everything Watson's saying. I mean, you know, just put in that clip of him catching Champ Bailey from behind, and, and you're 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 just gonna love this guy. <laughs> I'll never forget that as long as I live. So, uh, yeah, I hope Watson, even if he didn't play, he's in the building talking to people at least, uh, doing in some meetings with the tight ends. Um, but uh, where they got Mac. I'm fine with it, but I stand by what I think of the Saints last year. They really kind of doomed themselves for this class. And, like, the bottom line, uh, just uh, my lasting memory here is, like, uh, Marcus Davenport equals Jair Alexander and Darnell Savage. You better hope Davenport is an all-pro. Uh, this is all i got to say for the Saints. I, 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 I rest my case. The defense rests. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, in their case, in, in their case, yeah. the defense better not rest. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I know they're gonna. The coaches are gonna have their hands full because, like you said, Chauncey Gardner Johnson. There were some questionable interviews, I guess, leading up to the draft with him. They already have Eli Apple in that locker room, in that secondary room. So we'll see. Uh, you know, the coaching. You know. Strong coaching staff, obviously. They're just going to have to work yeah. a little bit harder, maybe. Um, and I think the right, one John thing Mar- that they do is that give their coaches not control over, but the, the say-so to to say what they want to say and to present their cases that they allow them to say, like, hey, this is the type of guy, this is the type of situation, these are the type of things we're going to be dealing with. You know, is it too much? Is it okay? Are you going to work with it? Can you work with it? You know, so they are in step-for-step, step, you know, there. Like we talked about earlier, you know, sometimes organizations are pleasing the owner or pleasing the football side or pleasing the coaching side. You know, they walk in line. They are very comfortable making these trades year in and year out to get one guy that they think might put them over the hump. They'll trade a one or two or three, very Bobby Bethard old school style of making a trade to get a guy this year and, you know, they'll pay the piper next year because in their mind you can get a two or a three or even manipulate around because they keep proving it to themselves on draft day or leading up to the drafts that they are able to manipulate their way out of what they just did, right? They do the Davenport, you know, deal last year. Now they sit there and they deal with losing Unger, you know, after free agency in that weird world of losing him after free agency but before the draft, and they go up and get a guy that, you know, could have been, you know, the equal of, if not better, you know, of Bradbury who goes in the first round. So you're getting the top one, two, or three interior alignment. Then you're getting a guy you feel can compete at either to knock out P.J. Williams, potentially with their contract situations, knock out Von Bell after this year, add another teamer, you know, later in the draft at another guy who's a hybrid pass rush, you know, type guy at the end of the draft. And I think you see them feeling like they're kind of feeling themselves when it comes to organizing and manipulating around the draft from year to year to use that extra capital of next year's two to get something done today, a following one to get something done, a following year's two, and they come in and get Kamara, who they had a first-round grade on, they're definitely one of the teams that is feeling themselves in terms of, hey, don't worry about future draft capital. We got that covered. You guys as coaches pinpoint two guys that were, I would say, in the Saints' top 30 
and they were able to come out with them, you know, in the first and second round when they had no one and they had pick six, you know, a low pick in the 60s, uh, you know, they definitely did a good job of maneuvering it around, like you said. Now the GM leaves it on the hands of the coaches to say, you guys said you could handle these guys. You guys made the case that you had a good interview or you like, you know, what kind of guy it is. And I think they also temper it out by what I said. McCoy is on the high end of the character, work ethic, you know, and, and type thing. He is a guy that's team captain and all the other things. So you add one that's got a little bit of a question about his interviews and maturity off the field, but you added another kid who's a staple who once he steps in and he's playing for you is a leader, you know, and a locker room and a work ethic type guy. You hope that rookie classes kind of balance themselves out by having not too many choir boys and not too many dinks. Yeah, and I would put Saquon Hampton, high character leader uh, in that category as well. Uh, John Murphy, Joe Everett, Rick Saratella, the NFL Draft Bible Familia, breaking it down here. Recap of the 2019 NFL Draft. Of course, you just heard from Emery Hunt, a football game plan. Uh, We've been bringing you the guests, not only the names you need to know, but the guests you need to know throughout the week. And uh, Joe, you know, Emery came on and talked about, let's talk about some of the drafts we don't like now. And he mentioned the Chicago Bears. Um, I do like, you know, the Riley-Ridley selection I think could fit in well uh, with what the Bears are doing. And, you know, this is a team kind of knocking on the door, right? They're trying to take the next step. And I just, you know, he makes a good point about Montgomery. You know, is it an upgrade uh, over Jordan Howard? I guess so. But was it significant enough to do what they did and then take another, you know, running back later in the draft? Your thoughts quickly on what the Bears did, and then, you know, what was a draft or or someone that you thought, you know, had you scratching your head? I just don't know that the Bears addressed uh, enough needs with the picks they had there. And, yeah, with running back, it's uh, throwing two picks at that. I I thought Mike Davis would have been an okay compliment. But what Montgomery brings is I I think he is a little bit more – complete like he's a very good receiver like Matt Campbell has talked about how he's the best route runner on the team so I if anybody's calling him oh he's the new Jordan Howard two down banger now that's bad uh, analysis I think like Montgomery can catch he's not a stiff um but uh yeah throwing the picks at it addressing the needs did you need to take Riley Ridley like I like Allen Robinson and I think Anthony Miller considering that shoulder injury and what he played through, like that was a great rookie season Uh, in in the first year of a new offense, like look out year two. So do they need probably really, it's yeah, it's, it's a real confusing draft. I think by the bears, but still I'm sticking to my worst draft is uh, the the Texans. I I hate to keep picking on them, but like you, you, you got a bunch of speed you're dealing with with Indianapolis Colts. No one on your team can run with T.Y. Hilton. They just drafted Paris Campbell. You take Lonnie Johnson, who people know can't run. I, I, just, I like, go ahead. Fine. Uh, still, though, some good picks. Kahali Waring, I like him. And then Amenahieu, I thought he was top 100 player. Um, you know, just yeah, egging my face. I'm wrong on that one. I'll be wrong again uh, here in an hour. But uh, I think still, the, as a whole, where they went wrong is panicking. It, uh, Titus Howard's not a bad player. He's he's a quality athlete. It's just like that, that they were going to take Dillard, and I mean 
the Eagles stole their lunch money in the league knows it. Uh, this this whole draft hall, I don't know. It's another team. I'm I'm not sure that they addressed enough needs. Uh, still, the secondary I believe is a problem, and the the rest of the division is getting better. And the the Texans, I don't. I just, yeah, sorry, sorry, Houston. That's still my worst draft, and it's it's not easy to pick out losers, but they're definitely the sore thumb, I think, of the league. All right. Well, you know, they did. They gave up, I think, a league worth sixty-two sacks. So give them credit at least for trying to address the need. They they draft two tackles and Titus Howard and Max Sharping, uh, two tackles from the FCS level. You know, they had some luck, uh, you know, with Julian Davenport out of Bucknell in the fourth round. He emerges as a starting left tackle, so they go back to that FCS wishing well. But, uh, you know, the seventh – I don't want to criticize a seventh-round pick, but, you know, Cullen Gillespie, I I guess he had a great pro day out of Texas A&M, the running back there. I just feel like, you know, hey, you could have had that guy as an undrafted free agent. I never spare – I never waste – uh, a, a, a draft pick, even if it's a seventh rounder. So, uh, especially on a running back. I mean, listen, I I, I could have got a Cullen Gillespie, <laughs> similar type of running back, I'm sure, on the undrafted free agent market. But hey, I'm not here to criticize seventh round picks. Um, I will go back to the Bears for a second, John. You heard Joe mention the Texans. You heard Emery mention the Bears. And then, you know, as Joe was talking, I thought the uh, FAU kid was was selected maybe as a return guy. And then I, I completely forgot to realize Cordero Patterson's on this roster. Is that true? I mean, is that – I mean, I don't know. What are the Bears doing here, John, and, yeah. and do you agree with the Texans? Well, I think I think the Bears thing comes with – they obviously think Montgomery can be a more, uh, you know, more of a two or three down back compared to the Jordan Howard you know, role. You can't keep having it be forever that every time you put Cohen in, he gets the ball. That kind of makes it available for even the worst D coordinator to start kind of figuring your things out. It also is obviously a money thing. They were not never planning to sign Jordan Howard to a long-term deal, and now you probably can get, you know, a couple of good thousand-yard seasons out of Montgomery, you know, who in the right scheme, doing what he's doing could turn out to be Whatever way you're tying in, you know, dividing this up later on, he could be the best fantasy running back in this draft, you know, immediately. He could end up being the best running back, period, in the draft. You know, when you think of Jacobs, no long speed, you know, better blocker maybe than Montgomery, but with the ball in his hands and what, you know, what the scheme and what they're doing, he could turn out to be a better, you know, running back. So I think they improve in their minds because they get a guy who's, they are looking to do with the guy. He's cheaper. He's under contract, you know, for a longer period of time than Howard, and they divest themselves, you know, of that situation, knowing they're going to pay Cohen down the road. Then if you have a guy like Cohen, and he is so unique and so important to your offense, maybe taking a guy like White is your insurance policy to say, hey, Cohen is 5'6", 100, you know, he, you know, he is a guy that could get dinged. He is a guy who could, you know, take a big shot and then be out of your offense. So to have kind of a, a light version of that that knows your offense and you bring it along, you know, again, hey, it was the seventh round. So, you know, were they really going to get, a, you know, a guy at the offensive line or, in, you know, improve their secondary depth at that, at that position? Probably not a playmaker, probably not a guy, you know, that plays a, a huge role for them. Uh, I think for for me, more the Ridley pick definitely ends up being a guy that they liked 
you know, he can do a lot of the things that they're looking for. They're not really caring about his speed because of the routes and where they plan to line him up. They're hoping that, hey, he can get open based off of the coverage going to Allen Robinson. And then in that case, his yards after catch are not really affected by his inability to, you know, stretch the field. He's strong. He's got the great work ethic. He's obviously a guy who's smart and, you know, did things the right way at Alabama. So that all fits into their characteristics. I just think at that part of the draft where they got Ridley, that's probably where they could have gotten somebody who might have more of an impact right now this year as opposed to taking another wide receiver where they already have some guys in place and where a guy like Patterson even proved last year when New England had all those injuries that he filled in nicely in a variety of ways, you know, with things. So that was kind of probably more of a surprising pick. I think the other part of things with the Texans comes down to, hey, could it be that they just didn't find a trade, uh, couldn't get a trade to get out of there, you know, fast enough after, you know, the Eagles take Dillard? You you had to know the Eagles were one of the teams. The Eagles uh, and the Falcons were probably two of the teams you had to worry about coming up and possibly taking a tackle. I think the bigger question is, we see after Dillard goes, and they come and they just sit there and take Howard. There's not another tackle taken until the early part of round two. So now, well, Jawan, clearly Jawan teams Taylor, question, I think Jawan Taylor, Jawan Taylor, I think, was the next tackle off right. the board. And so I so think what you what, see is the questions that teams had, Taylor's longevity between his knee and his back. Is he going to be a guy that can play – a long time in the NFL, could he suffer an injury early in his career and, and never be a guy? You know, those are, those are questions that are out there. Obviously, they question Cody Ford being able to be a strictly right tackle and not a guard tackle, you know, type prospect. So, obviously, their evaluations of these guys, one, it's clear they had Howard very high, but two, it's clear that they had question marks on those other guys to say, hey, instead of trading back, and there's a chance that there was no trade to be made, or trading up in round two to come get a guy, it's clear that they could have had potentially Dillard, Howard, and then Sharfing could have been their third or fourth rated tackle just based on how it played out in the first two rounds. They may be sitting there saying, we got two of our top four tackles. You know, like just in terms of if they do not have those other guys as highly rated as others, they're thinking like, hey, we can't let that guy go, and we can get into that discussion about GM saying we can't potentially lose that guy. But you also see that, hey, the offensive linemen, there is a possibility somebody else. You know, Atlanta, I would say probably not because Kayla McGarry is the polar opposite in terms of prospect type to a Titus Howard you know, in terms of he's more game-ready, he's tougher, he's more of a physical-type guy, you know, where Howard, you're banking on the Toronto Armstead, the athletic ability, that you know, that type of long range. He's a potential left tackle, you know, with the athletic ability and better pass, you know, stuff. Atlanta was going more for physicality and guys that could step in and play right away. But there is a shot there that if other teams have the same medical or position questions, that there is a likelihood that the Houston Texans not only felt that they just got jobbed by the, by the Eagles, but that Titus Howard may not be sitting there 
when they were picking in round two, and then they were nervous about not coming out of the draft with a guy that was credible enough to compete at all. John, who who was your head-scratching draft as a team overall? Well, you know, I know I know a lot of people went with uh, the the team wearing blue in New York. I would also say that you could make a point for the team in green. Mm-hmm. Am I a hundred percent sure? I I love Quinn and Williams as a player, safest pick, number one guy. But is he a better fit for Greg Williams than say Ed Oliver? Personally, I think that Greg Williams got the player that the Jets wanted to select because once you couldn't trade down and you knew you weren't taking Josh Allen and Quinnen Williams is on the board, to sit there and take Ed Oliver, it would have sounded like Kyle Brady. Now, it was in Nashville, so wouldn't have, you know maybe the echoes from New York wouldn't have made its way all the way to Tennessee. But I think they took the best, safest player at the position because they said it's an impossibility to pass on Quinton Williams unless you're taking a different position. And to take Ed Oliver, who might be a better scheme fit for Greg Williams, yeah, we just can't do that. You know, we can't, we can't, (laughs) that's not a decision we're prepared to make. So I'm not sure 100% they got the best value for who they got there. Then you're hearing rumors about Robbie Anderson. You're hearing you know, uh, you know what they're trying to do to put weapons around them, and then you don't draft one. Great. Uh, Wesco, I think, is a very good football player, and to help your ground game and support your O-line, you know, catch a few balls that people don't expect. But where's, where's another guy to help, you know, with what they're doing? I, I don't see another, you know, weapon, you know, on the outside, and they had options and they had opportunity. So I'm not in love with what they did with the picks they have the same way that I will say Kyler Murray in that system to that team, it's a perfect storm and, and all of that. The number one pick, is he considered to be the number one pick if any of the other top ten teams, maybe the Raiders, but any of those other teams, if they are in the top ten, it's not lock, stock, barrel that they are making the moves that Arizona made. And the totality of their draft and what they did will get tied not only to what Kyler Murray is able to do and that scheme of offense that everyone and their mother is now trying to prepare for. It's not like you're bringing something new into the league. Kansas City's already done it. Other teams are doing it now. You're hoping your version of it is good enough to win a very tough division that features all the young defensive players San Francisco has drafted and an offense with Garoppolo, if healthy, Seattle picking themselves up off the ground after losing all those players and and bringing in a a lot of talented athletic guys who will see how they turn out to be football players and a Rams team who already, we already know what they're looking like after last season. You're not only putting that on Kyler Murray and this system to work. You're also now praying that Josh Rosen doesn't go somewhere and turn out to be a guy that you gave away for nothing. You got literally nothing in return for trading him. And you did something that's never happened in the history of the NFL, being a top 10 quarterback and having him be traded or off your roster in less than a calendar year has never happened. You're making a lot of first-time decisions on a head coach, on a 5'10 quarterback, and trading your franchise quarterback from just a year ago a lot of things now have to turn out correctly 
for the Arizona Cardinals to have had a good draft. Let's see how all that plays out. And the final one, I think, would be the Bengals. And the Bengals one is more, hey, and Emery mentioned it, it's hard to argue with who people took and say good or bad, but it almost feels like, hey, you're hoping that the reset with Zach Taylor and, and a changeover and a kind of a washing of, you know, 15, 20 years of the same type of coordinators, the same type of players, you know, the same type of management style and things. You had multiple chances at a, a different quarterback. Ryan Finley, great. Is Ryan Finley beating out Andy Dalton? And if he is, is it any kind of upgrade? Mm, not probably really. Similar, similar-ish. He's a taller quarterback. He's a tall. He's a taller version of Andy Dalton. <laughs> right, yeah, you know. So I'm saying that you know, like where and who they picked, to me is is more of the question to say, are you hoping that by fortifying the O line and the good D tackle in Ronell Wren, Travion Williams later on in the draft, good insurance policy because you probably can't get Gio Bernard on a new contract after this year. Is that going to be something where you're looking back a year from now, or are you just looking at it saying, we're going to build around what we have right now, and we'll let Zach Taylor evaluate Dalton and Finley now over the course of the next 12 months, and hey, there's a quarterback in next year's draft, and in all likelihood, the Bengals look like they're, you know, sitting in one of those early seats, you know, for contenders to be a top 10 or 15 pick again next year. So, okay, we didn't take Haskins. We didn't come back in round two, three. You know, we, we waited and got Finley when we got him, but he might have just been best player on the board at that point in time. So I think there's a chance that depending on how things work out in the next two years for the Bengals, they could be looking back at this draft and saying, hey, we got good players, but some of the guys we left on the board at some other positions might have been better and further along in the process had we taken the quarterback a year earlier, had we made some moves in the direction of saying, like, hey, it is time for a little bit more of the rebuild than what we're admitting to, it seems like they're dancing in between having Dalton for one more year and A.J. Green and the veterans and a full-on rebuild with Zach Taylor and the type of guys that him and his coaching staff want. That's always a very delicate situation to deal with, uh, you know, when you're, when you're kind of feeding both sides of that equation. Well, a lot to digest there. You know, to me, the Bengals actually have a pretty solid roster, I feel like, but it's the quarterback that's preventing them from getting over the hump. So, yeah, it's just mind-boggling that they wait until fourth round to take a quarterback, and it's Ryan Finley. He just doesn't really get anybody excited, uh, anybody that I know anyway. Um, you know, the other thing you mentioned was the Arizona Cardinals. Listen, if you told me – when we're recapping uh, the 2021 draft two years from now, uh, that Kyler Murray, Cliff Kingsbury, and Stephen Kime were all out of the NFL, I would not be shocked. So I think this is a recipe for disaster. I think it's a fire dumpster. I think it's a train wreck waiting to happen. And you know what? They turned Josh Rosen into Andy Isabella. And as you know, I'm as big a fan as Andy Isabella as anybody. But, you know, I mean, it's just (laughs) bad Poor decision-making. You know, I don't get it. I don't understand how a a franchise or or an organization, Michael Bidwell, I don't know how you allow this to happen to your team. And then, you know, we talked about the Jets on previous shows, like Ja'Kai Polite 
playing outside linebacker, which I've confirmed with the Jets official. How do you draft a 5-0 defensive end and then expect him to play outside linebacker? Hey, Greg Williams, I know you're good. You're not that good. Um, what I thought was actually, you know, kind of I felt bad for the guy. Uh, you know, Mike McCagnon's been dead man walking now for, you know, who, who knows how long. Uh, I, I'm hearing he could be dismissed as early as this week. Why Why is he even in your war room? Why is he even there if that's the case? And, and it goes back to John's point earlier in the show with, you know, the Redskins. Like, is everybody on the same page? Like, are we going to give Bruce Allen credit or should, should we just give Daniel Snyder credit? Like, who was calling the shots there? And I think there's credence to that. Yeah, you could have a, a great draft, but if you're not on the same page in the front office, then it trickles down. It's a trickle-down effect. It starts with the leadership up top in the building, and, you know, players sense that. Players feed off of that. Yeah. And, you know, when you're not on the same page, it, it, it's just, you know, like the Arizona yeah. Cardinals, I mean, are they going to have a different blueprint next year? <laughs> when when Kyle, Kyler Murray gets hurt, right. says he wants to go play baseball, <laughs> then what? You know, I mean, look at, look at what crazy. We, just, we, we saw it play out. Baker Mayfield, number one pick. You know, Baker Mayfield, clearly a good, good enough to be the number one pick, good enough to be rookie of the year, good enough to set records. You know, break records of Peyton Manning's. But what was standing in their way until that owner realized what really was standing in their way? There was no way to get out of, you know, the situation that they were in because you could argue about the analytics crew and the, all the outside the box thinkers they brought in there. Hey, you know what? Some of that stuff actually worked. You know, it didn't work on the field, but did it not work on the field because the manipulations of it, the the radical thinking and approach to it, when you match that with old-school thinkers, old-school football coaches who think these guys don't know what they're doing, they don't know how they're running the front office, the draft, the salary cap, the, the roster manipulations and things, if you're not walking hand-in-hand, hand, it doesn't work. You look at Seattle when, you know, when Snyder and those guys all got there and him and Pete Carroll were walking hand-in-hand. Hand. Pete Carroll understood why he wanted to change player number 30, player number 50. Every week they were signing a guy, working guys out and signing a better 75th man on the roster. That's very easy for head coaches and position coaches to get upset with having to teach new people, uh, change the room, change the – you know the, the you know the mechanisms in the locker room and practices and so on and so forth, but when you trust what the other person's bringing to the table, over time, all those roster manipulations played out to finding Doug Baldwin and finding a Sherman and finding the next pass rusher and finding the next running back, you know, for themselves and allowing them to build the roster that they ended up building, which was a Super Bowl winning roster and then a Super Bowl contending roster, you know over and over and over again, you know, there. So I think you see the teams that are in lockstep never have a problem with free agency, the draft. You know what their plan is. You know what their thing is. You know, no one's talking about, you know, Stidham, you know, and stuff coming in and beating out Tom Brady or, you know, any, hey, it's a good pick. You know, we have a backup quarterback. You know, we have a guy that can now contend and see what he looks like before Hoyer hits free agency. You know, they hit all their mile markers, every position you thought that was a question mark or a need. New England ends up getting a guy, moving around, getting a different guy, you know, supply and demand at offensive line, supply and demand in their secondary, 
three running backs out last year, two new running backs in this year, right? We're not having those same questions that we are with other teams because we know they have a plan, they're working that plan, and now that plan is headed in the right direction. San Diego, another team that looks like that. Colts, another team that looks like that. We have to build up trust with the Bears organization, with the new Buccaneers, with the current Atlanta Falcons to get to that point, even the Houston Texans, to say, hey, we're the guys they chose, the guys that the personnel department and the coaching staff agreed on, that's our guy. Because if that's true, then the Texans, you could argue where they took the guys they took, but their draft grade will slide closer to the middle. And some of the other teams' drafts, like I said, will probably slide closer to the you know, the B minus C, you know, and whatever areas. And if you're in the top 10 and you turn out to have a B minus C level type draft, you're dooming not only the current staff that you have, but you're probably leading the door open towards, forget about McCagnan, you're walking yourself right out that door as well. Yeah, and final thing I'll say is, you know, listen, I don't see how McCagnan survives another losing season, and that that appears destined to happen. Maybe I'm wrong, but it's like, okay, well, now next year a new GM comes in and you just brought in a new coach, and it's just like the turnover is ever-changing. Uh, Woody Johnson's, you know, overseas. The son is running the the, the show. It's just it's just the same old typical Jets. I, you know, I hate to harp – Jets and the Giants. I hate to harp on the teams here in my own backyard. So that that means we'll transition to another segment. It's John Murphy, Joe Everett, Rick Saratella here, breaking it down, recapping the 2019 NFL draft. We're going to take a deeper dive into day three, go round by round, and we're going to pick our favorite selections for each round. So we're going to kick it off with round four. I'll take the privilege to go first here because my guy, Yelda Froholt, fourth round pick. New England Patriots, there's that team again. Uh, Here's a guy that can play all three interior positions. Had a chance to see him at the NFLPA Collegiate Bowl where we quickly identified him as the best player in that event. Um, Only six players drafted this year from the NFLPA Collegiate Bowl. Froholtz, clearly the highest guy. Uh, Once again, you know, Parry Nickerson two years ago, Froholt this year, we we identified the first player off the board from that game. Um, I just love everything this guy brings to the table. I think, you know, the, the the Patriots probably don't need him to step in and start right away, but eventually down the line he will. And what's great about it right now is he could be that swing utility. You know, what's better than utilizing a roster spot on a guy that can play three different positions? So I thought, you know, Yelda Froholt, Arkansas, New England Patriots, that's my top value pick for round four. Uh, Joe, <laughs> I'm looking at the first pick of round four. Something's telling me that I, I, I might know where you might be going with your best value pick for round four. Yeah, I had this guy as a uh, first-round pick, and I think not only uh, do I believe in the player, Keem Butler, but uh, the home he's going to and the particular player he's going to be sharing a locker room with and Larry Fitzgerald. Uh, this guy, you know, he's not exactly had the easiest upbringing what with his uh, parents and losing them. I think he's got some NBA cousins that uh, kind of adopted him, his family he grew up with. But now I think uh, 
having a guy like Larry Fitzgerald putting the arm around the shoulder there, showing him how things done in the league. They got a bit of a similar body type, but uh, I think more so than anything, just how to be a pro. You couldn't learn from anybody better. I, I, I like the pick, and also, you know, they've got speed on the team. They need a, 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 another big body and somebody, so to speak, to take that mantle up. Um, it's easy to take the first player off the board in the round is the best pick, but I had a few names listed I won't mention. But, yeah, that's definitely – I like the fit. I like the situation. And uh, definitely, I, I think Butler's just going to be a player, man. I'm, I'm not sure what I'm missing here. Well, you know, the Cardinals definitely brought some ammunition in for, for Kyler Murray. Uh, Butler, we talked about Isabella. They had Christian Kirk last year they drafted – Fitzgerald coming back is probably the best thing that ever happened to him. Uh, you know, uh, Caleb Wilson in the seventh round, I think, you know, another pass catching threat. So, um, all right. Uh, Joe, you mentioned a couple other guys. You want to just throw out the names and get them off your chest? I'll just one Julian love. Uh, I know the yeah. giants, uh, and here I am supporting two teams. I really don't like their drafts as a whole, like Cardinals. You know, you're going to say you'd rather have Kyler Murray and Andy Isabella instead of Josh Rosen and Nick Bosa. Go somewhere with that. Uh, but <laughs> I like Hakeem Butler. Um, and the Giants, don't get me started on them, but Julian Love, I think this is just, I've said it before, scheme versatility. I don't care what you run, even if you get rid of uh, James Betcher. I think the new scheme Love would fit. Uh, character, a, a kid that's going to come to work every day. Uh, I think he's also an athlete. This is just a, a solid pick outside of the top 100. I, I think that uh, couldn't uh, ask for much better as far as value. Yeah, well, I actually thought that Julian Love and Corey Ballantine, Washburn Corner, were the, were the two best picks that I enjoyed from the Giants. So we're on board with that. Um, they can't all be bad picks, right? So, hey, only time will tell. Uh, over to John Murphy here for his fourth round value pick. Uh, John, who's the, the pick that stood out to you in, in round number four? Well, as hard as it is to not give it to John Lynch for taking an Australian punter. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. Obviously, not, you know, it, it, I, I can see why, but at, at the same time, I thought that was a little rich for my taste. You know, a couple of them. For me, and I think it's more where they fit and where they went out to, but I, I'm going to go right in the middle. Uh, although I was, after after you took Akeem Butler, I was very much prepared just to go to the total opposite and give it to Sharif Miller since he was the last pick uh, of the round. Uh, but right in the middle, I think Seattle taking Gary Jennings, who we all know what his forte and why he was getting drafted, you know, was that deep speed that he kept showing, you know, uh, throughout the course of the evaluation. Throughout the season, you know, Sills is getting all the love, getting all these catches, but here's Jennings putting up the big plays, then running a 4-4-2, you know, at 6-1.5, 2 range, where I think he slots in, you know, and if all this, you know, uh, retirement and medical stuff with Doug Baldwin, you know, turns out to play true, then Jennings has a, a very good chance uh, and I think it was a great comparison that, that was made in the book to mimic what Mike Williams from Syracuse did years ago and came in with Tampa Bay and had an immediate 17, 18-yard per catch, 8 to 1,000-yard season his first or second year in the league. And I think Jennings has the potential to uh, be a guy that's very, very productive 
in the role he's given by the Seahawks this year. And like I said, especially if it does turn out, unfortunately, to be true, you know, that Doug Williams, uh, excuse me, Doug Baldwin is no longer able to play. It's just going to take a large majority of those catches and be spread out amongst guys. And he becomes a, a guy that instantly could move up the boards in terms of production level for where he's taken. I think the other one is Amani Hooker and where he goes uh, last year throughout training camp. Every time they had a ding, every time they had an injury in the back end, they were keep going through the same guys that they've had in and out of there before. They made several changes early in the season, even to their practice roster, even to the last guy dressing week in and week out. So whether it's as a starter or to give them better depth and a better special teamer and a younger guy that can compete for defensive reps and defensive snaps, again, in that division, improved quarterback play you're expecting from Jacksonville, in you know Indianapolis and also you know the Texans, a better secondary, a better safety, a better player, and a better athlete. I think you know Hooker would be my number two, but I think Jennings falls to a perfect spot right there because he could come in and do more right away than Metcalf, who's coming in with a bigger name and a bigger reputation. But to me, Metcalf's a one-position guy. He knows about three routes more than I do, and that's not a good sign. And I think what they will try to do with Jennings is move him around and utilize that speed for the matchups. And now you have him and Lockett and Metcalf. They've completely changed what their you know wide receiving core looks like. So after getting that paycheck, the next thing that I think Russell Wilson's going to like is that when he steps out there for his first practice this year, his receiving core doesn't all look like five foot ten. Yeah, you know, we got to wonder, was Russell Wilson in the war room making those selections with, <laughs> with Petey Boy and John Dare? Um, no, I agree. Gary Jennings, I think, is an excellent, excellent value pick. I think he's set up for great success there. And uh, ironically, his teammate David Sills going undrafted. Um, so let's move on to round number five. Joe, who was uh, best bang for your buck here? This is tough. Uh, round five, I think, is just littered with some good values. But right off the top, uh, Amani Oruwarie, I hope I didn't butcher that too bad, but uh, the Lions, I think they needed that, just somebody to come in and compete. They need the other corner opposite Slay. I know they brought in Melvin. Um, they still got Justin Coleman. I think he's Tabor. They're just admitting, like, you know, we it, we, we made a mistake. Moving on. I think Oruwarie gets in there and uh, – play some valuable minutes for them right away um that's a player another one i just thought uh, would go a lot higher and um and just to defend the texans i know i'm supposed to take one but i keep beating up on the houston texans i like the value in charles omenahue i'm not that's about the fit but i think you got yourself a fine player there <laughs> all right fair enough uh round number five john what stands out to you here you know, one of the guys who I thought his film would have gotten him to a later part of the draft, and then I think his workout numbers probably surpassed what even he, he would have thought he could do. Blake Cashman, for what you saw on film, productive as a linebacker, to then see those workout numbers that were clearly not ones that were expected for him to run for, in a 4-5, you know, to jump – 10-4 and, and do the things he did, I think he has a real shot there, you know, to make a home 
on their defense uh, and and make plays the way that you've seen Kirksley make a ton of plays with the Browns. You've seen Greg Williams take guys like that and turn them into, you know, being solid NFL productive linebackers and players. And I think that this is a guy that fits, you know, what he's going to ask him to do. And like I said, the factor that a guy that you thought, boy, a lot of production there, playing in a tough conference, you know, making plays at Minnesota. But, boy, you know, how's he going to test, you know, 6'1", 235, what's he going to run? And then he runs 4'5", you know, and tests, you know, as good as, you know, some of the high-end, you know, even better than some of the higher-end linebackers. I think he's a, a guy that has gone from being a teamer, role-player guy to pushing for a chance to, to be substantially more than that, you know, in their scheme uh, and, and turns out to be, you know, a guy that, uh, you know, fits fits for what you're getting in the fifth round, having a chance to play and play early. Uh, and then I think the other guy, based on where he went to and all the stuff that's going on with the other guys in his current backfield stable, is Ryquell Armstead. Let Leonard Fournette do one or two more things that are not on the straight and arrow, and that kid's going to have the keys to the car. And he's going to fit their offense perfectly and give them, you know, a, a very suitable, you know, potential starting running back. Should there be another injury to Fournette or should he, you know, forget to call Uber between now and the start of the season? Ryquell Armstead could turn out to be a starting running back for the Jaguars mm-hmm. and to get him in the fifth round, you know, it, you know, could turn out to be a very good find for them. Yeah, it would not shock me if Armstead winds up uh, being the bell cow for them. You know, Fournette, as as you know, can't make the club in the tub. Um, you know, Darius Geis had a uh, interesting reaction on Twitter when when they selected uh, Bryce Love. I think you know. I wonder what Fournette is at home thinking about with the addition of Reichwell Armstead. Uh, you know, I agree. There was a lot of value in round five, tremendous value. I think more value in round five than we've seen in quite some time. Uh, you know, one good fit I saw was David Edwards to the Rams. I think, you know, there's your Andrew Whitworth replacement right there. Edwards, you know, played through that shoulder injury this year. But, you know, two years ago, he actually had a first or second round grade from the NFL advisory uh, board. So I think this is a great pick where, you know, I don't know how – dinged up the shoulder is maybe he needs a year to get get right um but he could slide into Whitworth potentially in year two so I definitely like that selection however um John Dorsey wheeling and dealing taking some risks I like what he did to go up and get Greedy Williams in round two I like him going after Mac Wilson here in round five you know just from a physical trait standpoint of view uh, I thought Wilson could be a potential round one guy you know we we spoke to scouts going into the draft said, hey, he could go, wouldn't surprise me if he goes round one, wouldn't surprise me if he goes day three. He winds up going day three, but uh, just a thumper in the middle there for Cleveland. I think if this move pans out, heck, even if one of the two moves pans out between him and Greedy Williams, I mean, you're adding quality SEC caliber type of talents here to your defense. So I like the Mac Wilson pick here in round number five all right let's move on to round number six uh john we'll start it off with you we'll give you first go around who was your value pick here in round number six 
I think it'd be too easy for uh, for me to instantly want to go to Kelvin Harmon, who we were all, I think, the three of us were wondering what we had missed. I guess that that forty time really, you know, crushed him, and then it was just a matter of you know scheme and where somebody was going to fit him in and play him. I think the Bears could have taken him, and Riley Ridley could have fallen here, and we'd be saying the same thing about those two players. I think they were very good in, in terms of why they didn't go earlier, why one of them went, and then another one had to wait an eternity. I think it's a good fit, you know, for not only for Haskins, but whoever, you know, Keenum or whoever's starting at quarterback early. Uh, and I, I still think he'll turn out to be a credible football player you know, whether or not he can, you know, get to the top 100 grade we all gave him is a is another story. And then I think Jerry Green, I think, again, uh, you know, what the Colts were able to do. Uh, you, you may have overdrafted because your guys had a, a, a real love affair uh, for, for Bonogu, you know, from TCU. And I think then you get kind of the same player, you know, a same athlete, pass rusher, you know, might just be the straight line guy who's got to play on third downs and give you a, you know, a pass rusher, you know, situational guy. But I think you, you backed up your early pick by getting another guy who potentially could do the same thing. And if the TCU kid takes a little longer to digest the playbook and, and, and play well in the NFL, you got Jerry Green now here in this part of the draft who might physically be able to step in and do the job early on. So I think they, they backed up the early pick by getting themselves another guy who is very similar, and it would not be shocking to see Jerry Green end up being a situational pass rusher, being a guy that can, you know, big teamer who runs and can run well for that size, and I think he gives them something that they're looking for, which is multiple guys, you know, in that second unit, second wave, coming off the bench rushing the passer, and we've already talked about how the quarterback play in that division is improving with Foles and Watson, you know, and uh, you know, and Mariota. So I think that that's a that's another guy that I could see, you know, uh, making making a name for himself in training camp with them at a position they're looking for. Yeah, the Colts definitely, uh, you know, stockpiling guys who can get after the quarterback. I think they signed Justin Houston. Of course, they drafted uh, Kamoko Ture. Last year, they added Bonago, we talked about, and then Jerry Green. So, uh, getting after the quarterback, got to be able to do that if you want to be a contending team in the National Football League. Joe, round number six, uh, still some good players coming off the board here. Oh, yeah. Uh, you guys definitely hit on Harmon there. Uh, I, I think Darwin Thompson to the Chiefs. I know they've got Hyde and they signed Damian to the two-year contract, but uh, that's a little more Jamal Charles flavor for you from Utah. The, that kid is lightning. And uh, if you haven't seen his pro day, just get a shot with this kid's shirt off, man. Boy, he's rocked out. Uh, I, I like the, the it's the last pick in the sixth round, compensatory. Uh, you roll the dice on somebody that could really change the backfield. Uh, I'm not nuts about the Chiefs draft now, but one theme they had this year, bringing in Thornhill, uh, Colin Saunders, and, you know, it's it's at Nicole Hardman, uh, athleticism, speed. Like, we just, we, we got to get faster and, and take advantage of this window while we got it with uh, Patrick. So, uh, I think uh, Darwin Thompson, you never know, just like, do we get another dimension on our offense with this kid, or did we just waste the compensatory pick? I like it. 
So that's uh, that's probably my favorite one. The, just canvassing this round, though, fellas, I see Basson Austin goes to the Jets, and, man, like, how high does he go if he's not injured on McCagnon's board then? That's my biggest question. Like, uh, the, he must have had a really high grade in that case. Sure. But, um, no, I, my favorite pick is the, that running back to the Chiefs and then also the Bengals getting those running backs. Uh, mm-hmm. Look out, Joe Mixon. There's some competition coming. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, I'll get to the Bengals running backs in a second. I should I should remind everybody, two Rutgers players in the sixth round there, uh, Austin uh, to, the, to the Jets and then Saquon Hampton, who we talked about, to the Saints. Um, I, you know, I really love Rodney Anderson as the player. So, you know, to me, it didn't matter what round he was chosen, and this is one of my favorite day three selections overall. With that being said, you know, they did draft Travion Williams. They do have Joe Mixon, uh, Giovanni Bernard. I mean, they they might as well just cut him right now because he's not going to be on the roster next year. But, uh, you know, I like uh, the upside here. Rodney Anderson, I just, I don't know, call me crazy. Sixth round, same round as Terrell Davis. I don't know if Anderson winds up being the best running back out of this year's draft class. I would not be surprised. I'm going to give you a hot take here. Um, you know, how about these Baltimore Ravens? I'm I'm going to just go on record right now and just let you all know that Lamar Jackson, don't get injured. Do not get hurt, my friends, because I'm telling you right now, he, you insert Trace McSorley into that offense, and he's he might be taking your job. I'm just saying. That's all. I'm going to leave that right there for everybody to marinate on. Uh, Trace McSorley there in the sixth round. If this kid gets a shot, you know, I don't know how long the lifespan of Lamar Jackson is going to be there. I know he did some things to win some ball games. Uh, just like Tim Tebow did when when he rallied the Broncos, I'm just not sure long term if this is a quarterback that has sustaining power in the league. So Trace McSorley, he might be uh, a blessing in disguise. So I'll just leave that right there. Hey, we can't get through the show with at least one hot take, baby. Let's start up the stove, baby. I got my Sunday gravy cooking. Let's go. Um, <laughs> John Murphy, Joe Everett, Rick Saratella. Breaking it down, 2019 NFL Draft, uh, turning the page now to the final seventh round, and then we'll get some parting shots and uh, wrap this show up. But, uh, John, I'll start it off with you again for round number seven, value selection. You know, that, this, was, this was an interesting round because you saw the teams that went for, you know, guys that uh, had higher grades at different times, and you saw some teams – go off the board and take guys that they clearly think, you know, have some developmental uh, type ability. So I'm sliding all the way down to the Dallas Cowboys and Jalen Jelks from Oregon, who at times, you know, could have been, you know, seen as a third to fifth round pick, uh, you know, has all the physical tools and the size that you're looking for. But then you hear the perfect things for Rod Marinelli, Give him all the tools, have a kid that's inconsistent, not sure what his motor, you know, not always using his hands. You know, can, if he gets blocked, he stays blocked. Guess what? If Jelks has it and can improve, you know, he went to the perfect person who's going to get it out of him. And I think for that part of the seventh round of the draft, you're getting a guy that's got a high volume of play, 
there's a lot of film to evaluate on their part. There is some production, so it's not a total project. But to me, you know, that's another perfect example of a team picking a project guy in their mind who has some rough edges and giving them to the perfect type coach, who you know, to work with that type of guy. So I think Jelks has a, a very good chance of either making their team scratch because their D-line is in flux with Randy Gregory and David Irving and, and such, or being a PR guy who down the road still has a chance to contribute to their club and get a guy who, like I said, at one time had a had a decent grade and probably would have been a middle-of-the-draft type of guy if he had worked on any of his inconsistencies. No, I like it. Um, I think, you know, Joe Jackson, too, the fifth-round pick, you know, you just add some, some bodies there that could get after the quarterback and see – what sticks and you know how about michael jackson and joe jackson coming off the board back to back you can't make this stuff up um joe round seven as john was talking i mean i'm scrolling through round seven i mean man i'm i'm liking this round seven i can't remember looking through round seven and saying hey you know if, if you told me if you took the round away and we were recapping the draft and you told me on wednesday that hey uh this is how the fourth round or this is how the fifth round is going to play out. And you told me I was looking at the fifth round. I wouldn't be surprised. There's some really good players here. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think, uh, yeah, Jelks is one of them. And, you know, you give me Joe Jackson and Michael Jackson, I'm going to give you Jackson Barton to the Colts. Uh, <laughs> I think adding him to that offensive line room is just uh, good business. That guy was uh, Garrett Bowles' roommate, and I don't think he's too far removed from the player that the Broncos had to take way too high. Uh, th- this guy it could be a 10-plus-year player for you. He's going to start as a backup. And right now, the Raven Clark, Jamarcus Webb, you know, uh, that collar's getting a little tight. The sweat beads are, are, are starting. I, I think uh, Jackson Barton, that's a really nice value where you got him, and I think it fits the mold of the Colts. Uh, this is going to be every year for them. They're going to take a couple of linemen and just improve this room. Uh, no matter what, they're going to have a solid front five. And, yeah, Barton, at, uh, I don't like I said, not going to start, but Anthony Costanzo is not going to play forever now. You know, uh, I, I like that pick as well, uh, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think there was about 30 guys, and on average, there's about 30 guys every year not invited to the combine that get drafted. I think there was 29 or 30. Uh, I'm looking at a couple guys here in round seven. Michael Dogby, I mean, we've talked about him from Temple uh, going to Arizona, reunited with Hassan Reddick now. Um, so I think, you know, we, we talked about, or I, I was on record for saying that Arizona is a, a dumpster fire, but at least, uh, they got my guy Dogby there in the seventh round. Ola BC Johnson, we talked about the NFL PA collegiate bowl. I mean, he was clearly the top wideout there. So just a name to remember for the Minnesota Vikings. Um, you know, I really liked Terry Godwin, not just the film, but what he did at the East West Shrine game. Carolina Panthers there. Um, Miles Gaskin, I thought, was surprising. He went all the way into the seventh round. Uh, he was a guy that declined a senior bowl invite, I believe. Um, and then Jimmy Moreland, you know, our other guy not invited to the combine. Outstanding at the uh, East-West running game. Solid at the senior bowl. Uh, Going to emerge into probably a, a slot cover corner there for the Redskins. Um, so, yeah, just a lot of value here. Derwin Gray out of Maryland uh, going to the Pittsburgh Steelers. I mean, I think that's a great 
value pick. Uh, Chris Boyd from Texas, man, he told me I was going to get Chris Boyd from Texas in the seventh round. I'd be ecstatic about it. And then uh, Terry Beckner Jr. I mean, this is the guy we talked about on the very first podcast of the year. I remember going back to last year's spring game, Joe, and doing a podcast with you and just saying, hey, did you see the Terry Beckner kid? And, you know, I just think the laundry list, I mean, this guy's got a medical rap sheet uh, longer than my grocery list. So, I mean, again, when you get to the seventh round, why not roll the dice? Why not take a risk? Why not get a guy like a Terry Beckner Jr.? Now, we're winding it down. We're going to get our parting shots in. I just want to remind everybody, if you did not purchase or download the 2019 NFL Draft Bible, you can still do it. Go to NFLDraftScout.com. Up there in the menu bar, the 2019 draft guide, it's available now. Make sure you do that or you're just not on top of your game. Whew. All right. It's hard to imagine 365 days down. We're one day into the 2020 process. And uh, before we turn the page, let's put a ribbon on it. Joe, uh, wherever you want to go with it, parting shot, another draft cycle is down the 18th season of the NFL draft bible what do you want to enlighten to the beautiful people out there on this beautiful sunday hey you know the one more reason to get that that draft guide it's got the 2020 class the seniors and the underclassmen there's never it's never too early to prep for next season's draft so that's why you get the extra credit a little preview with your sauce there so i I think that's definitely one reason but also i'm just going to fess up uh since in lieu of covering any undrafted free agents or whatnot, uh, I, I, there was a couple bad evals, and just in all honesty, I, I have to say it, I'm, I'm going to go back to the woodshed, and that's a promise to the listeners, the viewers, the readers. Uh, Antoine Wesley, not drafted. Tyree Jackson, not drafted. And Bo Benshaw, oh, a hole in my heart is, is existing. <laughs> Bo Benshaw did not get selected, so... Those are three of, uh, I'm just going to say, those are my biggest mistakes of the season. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm going to get better. I'm going to improve. And, you know, that, uh, was ultimate transparency is what I wanted to bring towards the end of that. If anyone said, man, weren't you the guy wasting a bunch of time talking about, oh, Ben Shelt? Yes, that was me, sir. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to get better next year. That's, that's my guarantee. So that's what I want to leave the listeners with. Yeah, and I, I don't know if Wesley's even been picked up yet as an undrafted uh, guy. We're keeping a lookout yeah, there. Yeah, he got uh, the Ravens, I think, signing him. Okay. Okay. All right, well, you know what? Maybe maybe we'll come back and do an undrafted free agent show. We'll see. We shall see. Um, but you can follow Joe Everett, our director of college football scouting, over on Twitter, at Joe W. Everett, never leaving a stone unturned. It's been a honor and a privilege and always a pleasure to co-host with you throughout the season joe and john one of our original nfl draft bible establishing founders here uh so kind to hop on the phone with us here today john i know you had a trying week a very tough week and our hearts go out to you of course you can follow john at draft jm 13 and uh john parting shot here as we get through another draft cycle well i think i'll take it in a in a different direction and say like this is the 30th draft give or take at 15 16 years old going into the city uh and and sitting there up in the 
upper deck of the Marriott Marquis, and all there were was a few hundred folks, most of them, you know, maybe an Eagle fan, you know, maybe you'd get a, a Dolphin fan that was up visiting family, but for the most part, it was, you know, a group of people limited to their, <laughs> you know, scope of reality to want to be sitting there watching the draft in the mid to late 80s, you know, and especially as a teenager wanting to w- learn everything possible about that situation and what the draft was about and how it was being done and so on and so forth. And to sit there on Thursday and have that opening scene, see that there was now over 100,000 people lining the entire area of a major city to sit and watch the draft. And that they were broken down into, you know, you could go and sit with your, you know, your team, you know, team by team. And how many relationships were built in Nashville over the last three days. Well, I'll finish with one that close to 15-plus years ago, prior to the morning of the draft, that's as simple as how Rick and I met. Rick putting his version of the draft on all the desks of the teams, using his credential, using his you know, ability to just figure a way in the back door to try to get something done, me doing the same thing, figuring, well, no one's going to pay attention to me. I look like I should be here, got a suit and tie on, got a credential. I'm going to go down there and put my version to draft on every one of the team's desks. And basically, that's where the two worlds collided. I think the biggest thing that comes out of it is every guy that got drafted just joined a new fraternity down the road, potentially makes lifelong friends and joins a family that they didn't have before. And what the draft has provided most for me in that 30-year period of time is strangers like you and Joe have gone from strangers to friends and family. And I think that's the biggest thing that you could see in a 30-year period of time is how the draft went from being covered by very few people and affecting and involving very few people to going to the point where their expectation next year in Las Vegas is to have upwards of 150 to 200,000 fans per day sitting and watching the draft. That's, that's unbelievable growth, you know, for, for a, a business and a part of the game that if it wasn't for those people that used to sit up at the Marriott Marquis, it wasn't for the people who kept clamoring to ESPN to cover the draft and to give it more coverage if it wasn't for guys like Joel Bushbaum and Mel Kuyper, you know, and even what Matt, you know, Mike Mayock has done. I don't think we would be sitting here covering the draft and going round by round and pick by pick the way we always imagined it would be getting done. That's something we talked about 10 or 15 years ago, and now here we are doing it. So it's kind of an amazing course of events to see how much progress the entire business has made from 2000 you know, 1990 when we met all the way to today. So, hey, Rick, I want to thank you for having me on as always, and I really want to thank you for everything you did this week. Ah, man, you know, I can't top that story. Uh, just outstanding. And, yeah, you know, you take, you're taking my breath away here. I'm never at a loss for words, but, you know, uh, well you're the second person to get <laughs> you're the second person this week, man, get me all emotional on the air, man. I don't do, I don't do this. 
Um, no, I was 22 years old, soaking wet out of college. Uh, like John said, you know, the draft, the draft was held in New York and, you know, back then, uh, you know, it was, it was a weekend gathering and I, I really enjoyed it. But I mean, here's John and myself. I mean, I forget what time the draft started. We're probably about seven, eight, seven or eight hours early. You know, the only two people in the building and I'll never forget it. You know, John came up to me, Hey, what, what you got going on over there? I said, Hey, this is the NFL draft Bible. And, uh, man, lo and behold, I mean, we hit the ground running our first year. We were syndicated on Yahoo, thanks to John. And, you know, we had the the draft Bible rocking and rolling out the gates. And, you know, back then, you could, I literally, you know, people don't believe me. I can literally count on one hand how many websites that covered the NFL draft actually existed. And it's like people kind of looked at you like, what, what's wrong with you? <laughs> what, what, what's the matter with you? Why would you want to do this? Um, just unbelievable how far the draft has grown. But for me personally, it's just unbelievable to watch how much the draft Bible has grown. And to be here today and, and co-host this show with my two brothers, John Murphy and Joe Everett, I mean, it just means so much to me. And... um you know, I want to thank you guys for all your hard work throughout the years, everything you guys have been able to accomplish. And, you know, I look forward to the next wave of the Draft Bible Familia and everybody else that's involved with what we do. And, you know, heck, I can't think of a better show to end the season, the draft season, the draft cycle, the 2019. Put it in the books. I promise you we will be back bigger, better, stronger than ever. So keep a lookout for it. Our draft guides on NFLDraftScout.com. We'll have some exciting stuff in the future on NFLDraftBible.com. I'm really excited about it. Again, I can't thank these two men for all the hard work, the blood, sweat, and tears throughout the years. And, of course, all of you listening at home, all the fans that have supported us over the past near two decades that tune into the podcast, that log on to the website, that support the Draft Bible by buying our publication and supporting the cause and believing in what we do. Man, my heart goes out to everybody, and I can't thank you enough. So, like I said, till the next time, everybody, we'll be back at it again. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. We love you all. The Rick and Joe NFL Draft Show, powered by NFLDraftScout.com.